is Actually You Are a Real Runner with Jacqueline Riccio. Hey, it's Jacqueline with SystemsForSelfCare.com, where I teach you to consistently take daily action so you can feel happier, healthier, and more confident. Today on the podcast, I have Sophia Matavia. Yes. Matavia. Almost okay. there. Yeah, I'm trying. <laughs> I My last name is Riccio and people mess it up all the time. They're like, Riccio? Rishi? And I'm like, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you. You are a business owner. You are a runner. Um, you spent time in Chicago. I'm really excited to talk about all these great things. Um, but the first thing we'll start with is, you know, I know that you you did the, the London Marathon, but let's go back. Were you always a runner? Was running a part of your childhood or like in high school and college? Well, you know, my London Marathon story really actually makes me laugh because uh, it's not the normal way that people start running marathons. Um, it's not, it's um, a story that involves a lot of parties and some hangovers. Is that all right? <laughs> yes. Yes, definitely. Right. Basically, I mean, I've always loved running, but like, like a normal person, like, you know, a half an hour run, you know, like a long lakeshore drive or something, or like in the morning before work in the park, not 42 kilometers in a marathon. Like that was not my thing. And uh, I'm now 38, but in my 20s, I was working in capital markets and financial PR in London. And it's kind of like, basically I had a bit of a Wolf of Wall Street lifestyle going on. So my, there were, you know, it was like a play hard, work hard kind of atmosphere. I was about 25 and I was having a lot of fun, which translates to a lot of nightclubs, a lot of booze. And a lot of hangovers and, you know, a lot of Sunday morning surprises. Yeah. <laughs> and then I remember I came home, well, actually, I don't remember coming home, but I remember waking up on a Sunday morning and feeling terrible and thinking, right, this is, this is not something that I can continue and I thought, and you know, I kind of had this feeling of, you know, kind of that feeling that I'm not entirely sure what I was doing yesterday, but I'm pretty sure that I shouldn't have been doing it. And then I thought, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to apply for the London Marathon. And so, without even opening the curtains in my bedroom, I got my laptop, you know, kind of, kind of peeled open my eyes and I wrote this application essay um, and for the London Marathon, you need to apply via a charity because so many people want to run the London Marathon that essentially you have to apply to a charity and say to them why you are going to raise money for this charity and why you really support their cause. And so I chose the NSPCC, which is a children's charity. And I had previously studied political science at the University of Chicago, so I'm very good at writing essays. So I wrote this essay about civil society and the importance of children and children's rights mm -hmm. and why I'm running for them. And then I basically submitted this essay, put down my laptop and went back to sleep with my hangover and basically completely forgot that I actually did oh this And then a few months later, you know, and basically I did not change my lifestyle at all. <laughs> continued the wild parties and continued all my, all my fun. And a few months later, I get this email saying, congratulations, you have been accepted to run for the London Marathon for the NSBCC. And I thought, oh, yeah, about that. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I mean, I've got to do it now. Yeah. 
<laughs> there's nothing I can really do. So I thought, well, better, better start training then. And, you know, at this point, I was running. Like, I, I was going for jogs, but these were, like, half an hour jogs and, like, doing, like, doing a yoga class just in a normal yoga studio. I wasn't, like, some kind of super sporty athletic person. And um, then I remember thinking, well yeah my lifestyle does have to change because like the the drinking and the smoking is probably going to have to be put on the back burner um which i which i did for four months and you know when you're when you're like 26 and it's your first proper job and all your friends are going out and you're training for the london marathon like for me that was harder it was harder missing the parties than the training because everybody Mm -hmm. was having fun everybody had gossip you know people were meeting people people were having dates and making out and I was like I am going for a two-hour run instead Mm -hmm. so um anyway I remember when I actually ran the London Marathon I ran it in four hours 42 minutes oh my gosh I did not I know I was like wow I I thought I might die (laughs) (laughs) you're really good yeah I remember even my mom was like are you sure this is a good idea the night before so um, my mom was going to drop me off to the starting point and I remember her sitting down in my bed the day before well the night before and said look I just want you to know that people die doing this are you sure and I'm like it's, it's gonna be fine but in my heart I'm thinking I might die I might die but I can't back out now like everybody knows I'm doing it and because nobody expected me to basically like swap my high heels and champagne and nightclubs for the London Marathon I got quite a lot of sponsorship because everybody was like what really (laughs) yeah (laughs) so I raised like thousands of pounds for the NSPCC anyway so I get to I get to the starting line and I'm thinking I might die but I can't back out now (laughs) better go for it so I am you know I didn't I didn't actually I didn't stop I didn't walk I ran the whole way um so I guess I don't know maybe my body's predisposed to it um or you know all that dancing in nightclubs has actually is good training maybe and uh yeah my finishing time was four hours 42 minutes and I remember in the last sort of mile I was thinking when this is over and my body stops shaking I'm gonna have the biggest party in the world (laughs) (laughs) it was like finally I'm gonna go and get myself a drink what's that saying like uh you can take the girl out of the party but you can't take the party out of the girl like you were ready I was ready I was like listen at the end of these 42 kilometers once like my toenails grow back I'm getting a petty putting on a mini skirt and having a lot of fun which I did amazing that is amazing I know not your not what you're expecting to hear when you thought, no when you about marathons yeah so you said though so like there was kind of um everyone's like partying you're in your 20s and I get it totally and especially if that was like the work culture like that's what you're surrounded with so there was kind of this like fear of missing out on all the stuff everyone else is doing and maybe like mumbling and grumbling about how to go like that you had to run but like how did you get yourself you trained like you stuck with training how did yeah, you yeah, so- yeah. Well, basically, panic and fear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that will do it because first, so the London Marathon takes place in April. And uh, I remember when it came to January, I was thinking, well, I really need to start 
training because it's quite long. And so I was like, but you know, running outside in London in January is really horrible. It's just not, it's just mm. not a thing that you want to do. And um, I wouldn't say I was putting it off, but I wasn't really, I was, I was running more than your average person. And I was running more than I was, than I had been before, but I wasn't running to the point that a marathon runner should. Mm. And then I would say about two months before, so around March, and uh, my birthday is in early March. So basically had my like smaller than usual birthday party. And then I was like, okay, right. No booze, no parties, no anything. I'm not going to hear what other people are talking about. Like I'm not going to engage with anything. And um, I remember a really hot guy asked me out and I really liked him. And I said, yes, but... I can't go out in the evening with you. And he's like, but we won't drink. And I said, no, 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 no. I know what will happen. So it has to, if you want to take me out on a date, it has to be a breakfast meeting. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember we had a breakfast date in like kind of a, a nice restaurant, like a nice elegant restaurant in London. And like, we were making out outside the restaurant, like at 10.30 a.m. <laughs> It's just you. That's just you. It doesn't yeah, matter if it's breakfast yet. Yeah, like after a smoothie. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, you know, I think when I look back at that experience, so first of all, I find it really hilarious. My friends find it really hilarious. Um, just because it's like, you know, apply to something on a whim, totally forgot about it. And then, whoops, had to run 42 kilometers. Um, but I do think that um, it's it's good to kind of force yourself to do things that you are not doing in your day-to-day life because like I wasn't unhappy with my life my life was fun I I had a really good job uh, you know working in the city of London which is like for the American audience it's kind of like Hall Street well it is like Hall Street Mm -hmm. so it was a good prestigious job I had interesting clients I was working on interesting things and Um, I had really fun friends and like quite a glamorous lifestyle, but um, it would have just been quite samey if I hadn't just all of a sudden just taken a complete detour and done something completely different. And it was an experience. I'm, I'm really glad. I'm really glad that I did it. And I think, um, you know, in terms of things like self care, I, and I know that you talk about this on your website quite a lot is that, I think self-care is not this thing that you only like do marathons. It's, it has to be a combination. So it has to be a combination of things that you find fun and pleasurable and also the healthy stuff. So like right now, you know, I have healthy habits, but also like on Saturday I had a really, I hosted a really fun party and yeah, that resulted in some hangovers, but actually it really helped me with my stress levels. So like, you know, I run, I run a business and sometimes as you know, things with business are really up and down and I was doing all of the healthy stuff that you were supposed to do for stress relief, like, you know, the gratitude journal and the exercise. And like, uh, I've been doing lots of exercise on, on Peloton and saunas and meditation and all of that. And like, I would say that that was helping, but what I realized that I really needed was just 
a really fun evening drinking wine with my friends. Yeah. You're a social person. Well, I think, yes, but also I think we need state breaks. You Mm. know, if you get stuck too much in the like meditation exercise state, you can kind of just plateau and get bored and get a bit depressed. Equally, you can get, you can sort of plateau in the socializing, always being out, always kind of like, you know, maybe having wine and wearing high heels and you can plateau in that. And then you can also kind of get bored and depressed. Whereas like, it's by mixing the two that A, you can like actually have a balanced life, but also I think a balanced mind. Yeah, no, that's so true. And I, I mean, which has been like a really hard thing over the last year and a half of like, if you are, (laughs) like you enjoy being around people like that had, that wasn't an option for a long time. And I think even like, I'm an introvert, but also like I leave my house and come to a co-working office to be around humans for the same thing. Like I can't just, I can't just be by myself for 24 hours a day and just seeing like flat people on a screen. Like I need to see like real humans. And also, you know, frankly, I need a reason to not look like a slob Mm. because it's, you know, like uh, today I've been uh, working from home, but yesterday I went to one of the Soho houses in London for for a work meeting. And it's like, and it was just nice to put on a dress and, you know, it does make you feel better. You know, it doesn't have to be about a date. It was literally like a coffee with with a client and, you know, I put on a nice dress and I put on some nice jewelry and you just get a spring in your step. Whereas I think if I didn't, I would have been wearing something comfortable and kind of thinking, oh my God, is this it? Like, what has my life come to? I'm having an existential crisis. Yeah. No, I agree. We, we had a family wedding a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, maybe. And it was the first time I had worn a dress or heels since 2019 I hadn't worn heels since 2019 I was like do I even know how to walk in these anymore but it was it was so true that so I don't like a life I wouldn't like a life that I had to wear heels every day that's just not me but it was I like that how you said that the change in the state Mm -hmm. it was something fun there was some novelty in it where I was Mm -hmm. lacking novelty for a really long time well exactly and I think you really put the nail uh uh on the head with with the pandemic is that we've all lost balance. So I I realized that the kind of life that makes me happiest is when on some days I am in a dress and high heels and I'm drinking champagne at a party, but other days I am at home and, you know, eating kale and being a bit of a Gwyneth Paltrow. And whereas like full on Gwyneth Paltrow lifestyle, not for me, makes her happy. She looks fantastic, great. Uh, I would rather look a bit worse (laughs) and have a bit more, well, what I think is fun. And I think the pandemic, it just, you know, some people completely just decided that to sit on the sofa and drink three bottles of wine, whereas I went completely the other way. I was like, I'm going to be really super healthy. I'm going to do all this meditation. And I'm glad that I did that. And it definitely, it helped me get through, especially, you know, the times when, um, like I was I was living in France for a bit and in France you could only leave the house for like an hour and yeah. so like for things like that I actually do think that having this like quite stringent self-care routine is important but we all completely lost balance and like I think you know we've a lot of people have forgotten how to socialize and how to like how to go to a party and like 
you know, the first the first party I went to in London, I got so excited. I was just overexcited. I just wanted to tell everybody that I loved them just the moment I got there because it was like, oh, people, humans. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Such a strange time to 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 be talking about this. Like it's just, it's still one of these things where I'm like, did that happen? Like this is a real thing that's happening and happened and is continuing to happen the whole pandemic and how weird it is to be excited to see humans because you just haven't seen them. Like you haven't touched a human in so long. It's so absurd. Well yeah and I think that we've forgotten some kind of we've forgotten some social cues. And sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing. So as I was saying I had some friends over on Saturday and um, there were people who knew each other really well, who hadn't seen each other for ages. And so obviously they went straight to kind of the deep stuff. But then there were people whom I liked, but who didn't know the others. But I think because there was like such a desire to connect, everybody just went straight to like discussing the deepest, darkest parts of their soul. Like straight away, it was almost like, hello, my name is Jack. Like, what is your biggest fear? <laughs> like, on a Saturday night. And in a way, I'm like, well, you know, these are these are all people that I know. So it was actually, it was a really nice, loving, wonderful atmosphere. But I also wonder if, you know, if we have kind of lost our ability to hold ourselves back sometimes, if, you know, if that were to happen, like, at a work-related thing, you know, like a cocktail for work, if people might kind of open up a bit too much and then feel too vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I wonder, is that something that you've seen? You know, when you mentioned that I was listening to a different podcast, it's called this American life. And they were talking Mm -hmm. about people in their twenties. Um, uh, they, I guess this was supposed to be like a big hookup summer, like everyone's going to be hooking up. And then they were talking to people in their 20s and they're like, no, like I go and I meet someone. And like you said, we start talking about these really deep things and it ends up being not this big flingy summer, but just like this really, um, really vulnerable moments. And I think it, it's, it's just a really confusing time right now. Like trauma recovery sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 It's a it's an interesting time. And I think we will only really understand what happened uh, to us, but also to our societies a few years later, because we're still in it and we're still getting confused. And, you know, I've also noticed myself overreacting to certain things um, just because it's like, you know, when you're in isolation and then something happens that's kind of like the only thing to occupy your mind with and so then you just become obsessed with this thing when actually you know in if life was more open it would be like that's one of the one of the things but actually that is not the only thing to be worried about that's not the only thing to get excited about I had to place very stringent rules on my use of social media and checking Twitter and deleting apps off of my phone because I would get obsessed over something that was happening in the news and checking. Let me check this about this. Let me check this. Let me check this. And then it was like, you need to go do something instead of consuming all of this right now because it's not helping you. It was a lot. And, you know, I also think that as a business owner, especially when you, you know, we've all been working from home, but I think if you're in a large company and you've got a team, you know, um, it has its own momentum and you are one of the kind of cogs in this wheel and the wheel is going to keep on spinning. You just kind of need to keep on turning up. But I do think for, 
entrepreneurs and for artists, essentially the people whose creative ideas and whose energy, like everything depends on your creative ideas. We all lose our creativity if we're basically obsessing over something on our phone or if we're just obsessing over the fact that, you know, something in something didn't work out. But like in life, something is constantly not working out. So but I think that when you are like when you're busy and you're doing stuff, you're kind of like, OK, one aspect of my life is not working out, but everything else is pretty OK. So in general, I'm pretty balanced, like annoyed about one thing, but not completely losing my mind. And, um, you know, like losing my mind about an argument with somebody I love. It's like, okay, that happened. It's not great, but like nobody's going to die from this. Yeah. 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 No, that is so true. And I think it's so true that because if you're just sitting at home, all of your interactions are either happening on the computer or the one person that you're talking to, but like you're going through your day. There's so many things that happen. Yeah. That's so true. I want to switch a little bit and talk a little bit more about the self-care that you implemented during the pandemic and kind of see like what, what stuck, what are you sticking with? So was running a part of something that you did over has running stuck since the marathon? Oh yeah, absolutely. But just more, not two hour runs in the London race. Like I'm not, I do not need to do that again. So actually during the pandemic, most of the pandemic, I spent living in the French Riviera. Um, Yeah, just by the Mediterranean Sea in the South of France, which was super nice. And running there is a treat. Like going for a run by the Mediterranean Sea, it's just a treat. And also it doesn't really get that cold. Like you're in Chicago, I'm from Moscow. So we know what cold is. I mean, the French, they think they get cold in February. I'm like, yeah, that's not a thing. <laughs> you don't get cold. Um, so to our standards, it's actually still quite lovely and quite warm. So it was one of those things that there was, you know, gyms were closed. There was nothing else to do. And it's a, like, it's a genuinely beautiful thing, thing to do there. And it is a pleasure. So running definitely helped, but also, I mean, I now have a meditation habit, so I meditate for about 10 minutes every day. And then, I don't know, have you tried Think app? No. Is it for meditation? So it's this thing where it's an app where you get to record your own voice, like saying affirmations or saying saying things to yourself. And apparently the, the reason why it kind of reprograms your mind is because if your brain hears your voice, it basically like is more likely to think that it's true. (laughs) So you kind of like, you record things that you want to believe that you don't yet believe, or, you know, things that you're working on and you just have that running. Like that's the first thing I do. So literally I wake up um, because apparently you're supposed to do it when you have just either woken up or you're about to go to sleep before all the skepticism and all the like, oh my God, you're going to fail at everything. Before that voice wakes up, you switch on the app and you're like, no, this is the first thing I'm going to put in my mind. Then meditation. Then like I actually have quite a long morning routine because I find that without it, I just lose my mind a bit. (laughs) um, Like journaling, that really, really helps as well. And I'm also 
a member of a coaching community. So there's a coach and there is a, she, she's called Cara Lewandahl. So she has a podcast. Uh, it has a curse word in it. So I don't know if, you, if I'm allowed to say it on your show. The Unfuck Your Brain podcast. Wonderful. Yeah. So she, she has her own community uh, and it's, it's all about uh, basically coaching. So mental, uh, mental health. And, and I found that that plus exercise is the thing that has been super important during the pandemic. And also I have seen people that I know who weren't doing this kind of stuff. And honestly, I do see a difference. And like, I'm not saying that I have all my stuff together. Like I really don't. Like I am a human adult woman trying to navigate the 21st century, which occasionally does mean like falling flat on my face. But I think if you, if you do this stuff, it's just when, when you do get, when something goes wrong, you just handle it a bit better or at least like the disaster doesn't last as long like maybe I don't know if if somebody breaks up with you you'll be really upset for like two weeks which still sucks it's two weeks of massive sucking as opposed to like two months of lying on the floor and crying I'd rather do two weeks yeah you have the tools to like move through the emotions and navigate the stress and like help yourself rather than like just staying in that hole and not being able to climb out. But, you know, I do also think that I really love what you're doing because I think that some people only do the exercise bit and then they completely forget the mind and some people only do the mind, but I think it doesn't work if you then don't do the exercise. And I think your message is, is so right that essentially it is a combination of the two and that exercise isn't about thinness it isn't about fitting into dresses it's about keeping your shit together oh (laughs) so true right and I think that like maybe in your 20s and for a lot of women even people listening like that oh my gosh I have to be thin I have to be thin I have to be thin but if you're not if that's what's going through your head you're gonna you can be doing these exercises and you're still fucked up in your head and so it's Mm -hmm. like yeah what I loved about what you had to say too is um, you're quite successful, right? Like you've had a very successful career and hearing you be able to say, like, sometimes I fall flat, flat in my face, like hearing you be able to say, like, I fail things, you know, my life is not perfect, but I have the tools, but you only have the tools because you consistently practice these things. Like this is like part of your morning routine is something that you know you have to do. Yes, but you know, it took a really long time to get there because I think also in my 20s, I didn't know that this stuff existed. Uh, so none of my friends were doing it. I think, you know, now actually people in their 20s, they're luckier because there's so much more emphasis on this. Like I literally didn't know. And I do, like now my life is better and partially because I now kind of have learned that I don't need to believe every single thought that I have Mm. and that you know sometimes a thing happens and then what you need to do is kind of just like breathe and be like oh okay right I'm gonna go and you know maybe I'm gonna have a cry maybe I'm gonna have a tub of Haagen-Dazs maybe it's gonna be a run maybe it's going to be all three just not at the same time and then I'll come back to the situation Whereas I think in my 20s, I was like, a thing happened, must react to it right now. It's a disaster. The world is falling apart. Yes. <laughs> and 
I think, you know, now I've built kind of one habit on top of another, but also it's because like I learned that these tools exist and, you know, even 10 years ago, like they weren't really spoken about that much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you have podcasts and you have social media, you know, people showing how they journal or what their morning routine looks like. It is definitely more prevalent. And it is also so true that like our parents, they didn't grow up doing these things. They didn't like explicitly teach it to us. So it's no fault on them, but it's like, we all grew up like everyone, all of us grew up with yucky emotions and not knowing what to do with those emotions. And then kind of like self-imploding or like self-destructing. And it's sad, but it's like, I do agree that now we hear more about what to do. And that also like, you're not a bad person and you're not abnormal because you're experiencing a crappy emotion. Yeah. And you know what I really love about your work is that it's not total Gwyneth Paltrow because I Uh, think that, you know, when you look at her, like when I look at her, I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, I know she has glowing skin, but you know, I'll just put on foundation, like sort it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am not going to, if it like, honestly, if it works for her, I'm not, I'm not bitching about her because mm-hmm. if it works for her and if it makes her genuinely happy, fantastic. But that level of self-deprivation is just not something that I can do because I love brownies and I love red wine. And, mm-hmm. you know, I speak French. I spent a lot of time living in France and like, yeah, that's foie gras and cream and butter and all of these delicious things. And I do think that kind of a joyful life involves pleasure. And sometimes pleasure is going for a run, but sometimes pleasure is a chocolate brownie and red wine at one in the morning with your best friends. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like, is that particularly great for your body? If you just look at it in one aspect, probably not, but happier people live longer mm-hmm. and social connection and kind of pleasures, they, they do add to our happiness. So this is why I really like your kind of, you know, health and all of that, but in moderation yes. approach, as opposed to the you must have kale smoothies every day. And if you don't, you are Satan. Right, right. And it, yeah, even the word pleasure can like, you start to get into like weird things with religion or with sex or with like what your definition of life should be on this planet. Like if you believe that life should be about like suffering and punishment and deprivation, if you do decide to have the brownie, you feel so much guilt because you're, you're doing something wrong. You're being bad. You should feel guilt about this. So there's like, there's like a lot of this deeper stuff besides just, it's like, uh, it oh, can exactly. open up a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's Judea Christian. It's like when people say, Oh no, a brownie is a guilty pleasure. And I'm like, it's not no, killing a baby. Delicious. Like, if you get pleasure from keeping babies, that's a guilty pleasure. But like having a brownie, I don't think that's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So you lived in Chicago for a while, which was so great. I read that on your website. What, um, what were your favorite places? Where are your favorite places to run in Chicago or places to visit? So I really love running by the lake. I mean, I think running by a large body of water is just amazing. And, um, now, so I went to Chicago booth and 
when I go back for reunions now I stay in the center you know where they're like when the river goes into the into the lake mm. and there's a bunch of hotels there and uh, also the Gleach center from the University of Chicago it's like near the NBC building mm-hmm. and just going for a run by the lake there and like through Millennium Park in the summer like not a winter in the summer right. it's so so nice and you know I know everybody says this but I love the bean like I think the bean is so cool <laughs> it's really fun to get to the bean in the morning before everybody is there and then you can like I can spend ages like looking myself yeah. in the bean so for the listeners if you haven't visited Chicago the bean is literally it's called cloud gate I think that's the official like, oh, artist name. I know I know it's literally just a giant bean with it's like a mirror and so you can like take photos and you're like a dis- you there's like yeah. distorted yeah it's a big tourist attraction it was this shape it's like this distorted mirror and it's it's a bit like you know in those fairground rides like when you go in and it's this distorted mirror um yeah it's like that um I love the art institute as well it's so beautiful and like the art there is amazing and but you know I haven't been to a Chicago bar for ages but I remember seeing James Brown at the Chicago House Blues um, when I was a student wow. and that was like I would say it's probably one of my favorite concerts ever because it's like it's so iconic like James Brown House of Blues amazing yeah yeah so you had this successful Wall Street like job and then it kind of led to you having your own business is that what you do full-time is your business yeah 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 I I do now so this is now uh, I'm now into my second business so basically I worked in um financial financial PR so financial markets then I worked in private equity in London then lived in India briefly and oh my god <laughs> you've lived eight lives <laughs> um yes got one more to go um then I got my MBA at Chicago Booth um started my first company which was in the fashion tech space which unfortunately I had to close down during the pandemic because literally all of our customers could no longer afford our services anymore because retail basically went completely screwed. But during that time, I started my second business, which is actually due to the same macroeconomic conditions has been growing really well. So it's called Tech for Non-Techies. So uh, we help smart, non-technical professionals learn enough about technology in order to start tech businesses or invest in them or lead digital transformation at large corporates. Because I find that right now, you know, tech is everywhere. Like even your coffee shop has an app. Whereas I find that most smart professionals, they don't know much about technology because that's just, you know, when we're growing up, that's not a thing that you did unless you were studying computer science. So there are the computer scientists who generally know computer science really well, but they don't really understand the business world. They don't understand marketing. They don't really understand things like, you know, return on investment. And then there is everybody else, like the business people who generally don't have a a clue about tech. And the only options that they have right now is to take a coding course, which frankly, not everybody needs. You know, if you are, for example, uh, if you want to be a successful lawyer working with big tech clients, you need to understand the basics of how tech products get built. You need to understand some keywords like tech stack and API. But you need to do that in order to serve your clients, not to actually build the stuff yourself. Yeah. And this is what Tech Front Techie does. So uh, we now, 
Now I'm teaching my courses at London Business School and actually will be teaching at Oxford University in the UK, which I'm really excited about. Wow. Um, you can learn a lot for free as well on the Tech from Techies podcast for your listeners who want to learn about technology, but in a very, like, in a very simple, non-technical way, because I think that as the economy changes, this stuff is just going to become more and more important. And the people who understand how products like apps and sites and algorithms get built and like what is big data, then you can essentially become more literate. So it's a bit like the new literacy in the 21st century. You know, yes, you can still get a job if you're completely illiterate. You can, I don't know, pull pines or like flip burgers. But if you the the better opportunities are essentially if you have some kind of well, if if you're if you're literate, but also if you're digitally literate, which is what we're working on. That's amazing. So can I can we go back a little bit? So you had yeah. to close your business yes. and pivot and start something new. Was that hard for you? That shift, like and not like (laughs) go ahead yeah it's a lot like that's that's a lot to have to oh this didn't work out I have to start something new well you know um to be honest it kind of happened organically so Mm -hmm. tech for non-techies had already existed but not really it wasn't meant to be a business so I'm a non-technical founder as I told you I was working on the business side so on the finance like media and finance and then I started a tech company when I came out of business school. And so I raised money and, you know, was working with developers and we created algorithms and apps that were used by thousands of people around the world. And like, we were app of the day and Mashable and like all sorts of great things happened. Um, and what I saw was that as a non-technical founder, working with technical people was really hard because I didn't understand the words that they said. I literally didn't speak their language and so I thought, oh, my God, I've just got this MBA from Chicago Booth that I paid $180,000 for and now I have to learn to code. Like, what the? Yeah. <laughs> so I remember taking this course online from Stanford and um, on computer science. And I was really, really annoyed because I was like, A, I'm really bad at this. B, I hate it. And C, I kind of thought I was done with, like, the studying. Anyway, so... I then had to learn quite a lot on the job about how can you be a business person? How can you be a business leader working with tech people, but not actually writing the code yourself? Because the reason why you have a team is because they do things that you don't know how to do, but you need to be able to track their progress and you need to be able to set targets. So how do you set targets to a tech team when you're not technical yourself? How do you track progress? How do you have a conversation? How do you understand when they tell you that something has gone wrong and how like can you like what do you need to know in order to actually be able to help them fix it? And so as I was learning this, I started writing about what I was learning in Forbes. So I had a column in Forbes for about three years and in the Financial Times and the Guardian. So I started writing about technology and entrepreneurship, especially what non-technical professionals need to learn about tech in order to succeed. So what do you need to know as a non-technical founder? What do you need to know as, if you're an investor who wants to invest in tech companies, but you don't have a tech background? Or what if you are working in a big corporate and is going through digital transformation, but your background is saying traditional marketing and you don't know like literally any of these words. 
And those articles kind of on the non-technical, like what non-technical people need to know about tech, they started trending. And then people started asking to give me, uh, started asking me to give talks. And then they started offering to pay me money for the talks. I was like, ah, this is Interesting. <laughs> and um, then somebody from London Business School, which is consistently ranked as, I think, the number one by the Financial Times in the world. Uh, and Chicago Booth is ranked as the number one by The Economist. So I, I'm going to go with that ranking. That's one. But anyway, <laughs> they asked me to teach my course uh, as a workshop at, at the business school. So obviously I was not going to say no. And but, you know, at this point I was running my main business. Yeah. And I wasn't. And but like this was a fun thing to do. And I, I like I never set out to be a teacher. I never set out to create a unique body of content on this because that was never the plan. It, it just happened organically because of what I was learning. And I saw that there was a real demand of, because at first I thought, oh my God, I'm the only idiot who doesn't understand this stuff. Then I, then I thought, oh, actually, and I realized that there were loads of people, but most people are too embarrassed to say that they don't know. And like, and I understand that because especially when you're in a leadership position, you don't want to say that you don't know. So literally what I used to do is like, I would hear a tech word and then I'd go home and I would Google it. <laughs> I tried to figure out what on earth it means. And I realized, oh my God, there are so many people like that. And so during the pandemic, the fashion tech business, which relied on revenue from consumers and from retailers, like our use case got completely wiped out by the pandemic because nobody was going shopping and retailers couldn't afford our services anymore. But because of the same reason, because of the pandemic, people wanted to learn, like there was a real thirst to learn. And at this point, I put my courses on tech for non-technical founders. And there's another course on how to speak tech for leaders. So, or there's another course on how to transition into a career in tech. So I put all those courses online and literally people were buying them. And it was interesting because it was one of those moments when, one business was falling apart for exactly the same reason that another business was flourishing. And I'm actually really, really grateful that I ended up having two at the same time, because I think if I didn't have Techron Techies, which I never even meant to set up, but literally it was like, it's like the illegitimate child, you know, that was just born. Like I had the official child, which was my first company. <laughs> um, if I only had that, I think I would have been, you know, feeling incredibly insecure because, you know, even even if you logically understand that, oh, it is like, yes, the economy has changed, the world has changed, you still kind of can't help but blame yourself. Mm. Whereas I think because there was one thing that was growing and another thing that was doing the opposite, it really made me go like, you know what? sometimes life just happens and sometimes like one circumstance can be really good for one business and it can be really bad for another business and that is just the nature of life and like having these two helped me have a philosophical kind of approach to it whereas I think if I only had the first one I would have just had a meltdown and just thought okay that's it I was like, I'm just going to go and like wait tables and just be a deaf mute for the rest of my life. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And it sounds like 
like it was, yeah, this thing was born out of you being curious about something and wanting to learn about something and then writing and that being shared with people. And it grew from that. Like, that's amazing. That is amazing. Well, it's really interesting because I now see that there is a need and actually, you know, there is a need in terms of the market need, but I also really do just kind of morally think that the world that we're living in now, I think the education system doesn't set people up very well because there is this now massive digital divide. Essentially, essentially, if you did computer science at Stanford, you are king and you will be fine forever. Whereas even if you did English Lit at Stanford, you are going to have a little bit more of a difficult time. And, you know, I went to the University of Chicago, one of the best universities in the world. And yet I am still seeing that people who don't have an understanding of tech, a lot of them are still, you know, kind of feeling insecure and kind of feeling a bit left behind. And and I think what the education system does now, it just assumes that you need to have this specialty. And if you are not going into the STEM subject, that's like, that's it. Like you will always be kind of like a serving class. And that's not true. And also that that's not the world that I want to live in. You know, I want to live in a world where people study the arts, where people study humanities. I want to live in a world that gives us artists and ballerinas and people who study history, uh, not just a bunch of computer scientists drinking Soylent because that will be boring. <laughs> but the fact is, as I said, even your coffee shop or your wine bar probably has an app. So that means that kind of this tech innovation is everywhere. So I do think that there is room for something that helps non-tech people understand enough about technology to have good careers, but also to be conscious consumers. Like, for example, there's a book called Hooked, which I really recommend people read. It's about uh, how to build habit-forming products. And it's literally a manual um, about how to build the kind of notifications and how to build the kind of apps, essentially, that keep on pulling us in. And the reason why I think it's such a useful book for everybody to read, it's like, you know, we are being manipulated by this stuff all of the time. And you know what? It's a fact of life. Like, unless you're going to just give everything up and live in a cave, this is what's happening. So isn't it better that you understand what's happening so you can make decisions? It's a bit like, you know, once we understand where oil comes from, then we can make decisions about whether you really need to keep the bathroom light on when you're not using it. Like once you understand that, like keeping the bathroom light on contributes to global warming, then you can decide like when, whether you're going to leave it on or not. But that should be your decision based on education. And this is kind of my, my aim for Technotech is yes, there is a, obviously a commercial angle, like I need to eat. <laughs> but, but I do think that the more non-technical people understand what's going on in the world of technology, the better legislation we will have, kind of the better regulation politicians will be able to create. Because like right now, big tech is just running all over us um, and running all over political institutions. And kind of the more educated we are about this huge phenomenon, um, the better off we will all be. Yeah. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. I, I think... I love what you said about 
being informed and understanding what's happening with these apps so that you can be the one that makes the decision for yourself. And also like, so you don't have to wait for someone else to tell you like, Hey, you should, or shouldn't be doing this. Like you're, you're your own person. I noticed yesterday I downloaded an app yesterday, day before, and then I saw myself scrolling on it and I was like, ah, I'm doing that thing that they want me to do this endless mm-hmm. scroll. And I deleted the app 30 seconds after I downloaded it. I was like, you're doing that thing again. You don't want to do this again. Just don't mm-hmm. like delete it. Mm-hmm. Now you're done. And it's off my phone. Um, but it's so true. Like these things exist and they're going to continue to exist. And unless you're going to completely live off the grid and go live in a forest and not have any technology, like knowing what to do and how to properly use it. I yeah, think it's, exactly. it's, sim- I, yeah. I, it's similar to sugar. Like I'd like, um, unless mm-hmm. you're only going to drink kale smoothies, you need to figure out your relationship to sugar. And maybe you don't want to have sugar for every meal, but like, do you want to have a brownie? What does it look like having some brownie without eating all of the brownies? Yeah. Like it's not going anywhere. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I do think that also there's quite a lot of insecurity about, technology like I hear a lot of people say oh you know I don't I don't know anything about this and I'm like well first of all yes because you haven't been taught it which is fine but also I do think that the tech jargon makes it even more scary and I also find that like when I worked in finances the same kind of thing it's usually kind of bro-y type people who make up a bunch of words, usually acronyms, which sound very ugly, um, for concepts that are actually very, very similar. But because you don't know the words, you then kind of just shut off and you're like, oh, no, no, it's not for me. But actually, a lot of the concepts that you need to know, they're they're quite simple, like they're logical, because, you know, all of these things are just logical concepts. So like, if you just can follow basic logic, like if you can follow a recipe, you can understand quite a lot of the stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's so true. The, oh, if I encounter something that's a little bit confusing, I will decide this is just not for me. This is for other people and then not move forward on it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that thing of like, that's not for other, uh, that's for other people. That is so, it's so disempowering. And I catch myself thinking that all the time. <laughs> and it's just one of those things that you catch yourself thinking it and you're like, okay, is it for other people? Because I can't be bothered and I genuinely don't want to do it. It's like, you know, some aspects of gardening. I'm like, okay, you know, you grow the flowers. I will pay for them. This is a good deal. I'm happy with this. this. But that's because I'm not living in a world where like the the flower growers are dominating economies and politics. Mm -hmm. If they were, I'd be like, I need to understand what on earth is happening with these seeds and how I will treat them. And that goes back to what you said, though, about the um, your morning work and your tools mm-hmm. and not believing every thought that pops into your head, because that is always my first thought. Jacqueline, you're too dumb for this. That's for other people. You're not. That's always my first thought when I encounter mm-hmm. something that's a little bit confusing. And it's like, do you want to believe like, is that true? Is that, is that not true? Yeah. Like, seriously. And. Um- you know, but the thing of like not believing your thoughts, it is so hard. I don't know. I wonder if like maybe by the time I get to my 90s, I'll be like the super Zen person who is like just so totally consciously aware. Because like I just I don't want your listeners to think that I am just like sitting there being Zen and not believing my thoughts and like no, 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 no. I'm just saying that it's better than when I did believe all of them, but like the human experience. It's still the human experience. The human experience still involves 
an occasional meltdown. Um, it's <laughs> yeah, it still involves getting yourself into some like twist when you're like okay how did I find myself yeah. in this situation but I think it's just with all of these tools I notice it sooner and it takes me less time to recover but yeah. the, the human experience is still what it is yeah no that's helpful so then you don't feel that shame of like when you do have a meltdown that there's something wrong with you for having meltdown and I've had clients who live in other countries say that a lot of times Americans think they're supposed to just feel happy all the time. And if they don't feel oh, yeah. happy that there's something wrong with them, but no, like all, all emotions are valid and all emotions exist and all of them serve a purpose and they exist for a reason. Well, you know, I'm Russian and I think that the Russians are just like, ah, oh, misery. That's pretty <laughs> normal. Here we go. And I think also like there's this like very, there's a very dark Russian sense of humor, which mm. I think people who are not Russian just find a bit like a bit too much, which I love. But I also think, you know, sometimes um, like I remember fairly recently I was having a meltdown and I was like really really sad and then I just started kind of like laughing at myself because I was like look at you like this is hilarious like you know what there's a bit of you that's going like oh my god this again really (laughs) and I kind of like I was I was kind of like crying and laughing at the same time and I thought okay still crying but also a bit of laughing like there is some light and I think you know First, there is some light and then there's a bit more light. And then eventually there's all light. But, you know, eventually, yes, there will be a cloud again and you go through the ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So I am curious, as someone who changed their career eight million different times and hearing your story as well. And I know that that's like a big shift that's happening for a lot of people. A lot of people Mm -hmm. are making career switches now, Mm -hmm. whether that is they no longer want to go into the office. They want to do remote work. Or I have a lot of people who are teachers who are like, wow, this isn't really what I want to do. Like this has been really crap. They're thinking about making switches. So two things. One, when you were young, like when you were first deciding to go to university, what did you think that you were going to do? What's that like that? Like when you were 18 or 21, what did you think you were going to do for your career? Well, my plan was to be a war journalist. Yeah. So yeah (laughs) slightly uh so I wanted to go and cover wars for like the BBC uh and then I did an internship at an NGO that's a non-governmental organization that was working on conflict resolution and I was I think I was 18 and when I was there basically somebody that they it wasn't one of their stuff like somebody on a project that they were working on died and uh, I forgot where it was, but ba- basically it was when I was doing my internship at this organization. And I just remember, like, I was in the London office and there was just this deathly silence across the office because it was somebody that they knew who was basically shot yeah. uh, in a conflict when they were trying to basically do good work. And I remember thinking, OK, maybe I'm not going to do that yeah and uh, this is why like I have such an admiration for people who do this job because I think it is so important and also you know it's so important and I wimped out of it so I'm really glad that other people have not so investigative journalists war journalists I think they do I think that's literally God's work yes definitely yes so lots of switches then lots of switches in what you've been doing do you have any advice for people who 
maybe want to make a switch, maybe, you know, right now or the next few months, they're thinking about making a switch in their career? Well, if they're interested in, if they're thinking about getting into tech, listen to the Tech for Techies podcast, see what you learn from that, because you might decide it's not for you. And it's better that you decide it's not for you by listening to a podcast than actually switching. But in general, um, my advice is try to get involved with something. Mm -hmm. So try to get involved. There are quite a lot of things that you can do even as a volunteer, because what you want to do when you are doing a career switch, A, you need experience to get to get experience in the first place. So often having some kind of volunteering position is a way to go. But also you actually sometimes think that something is going to be amazing and then you get there and you hate it. So for example, I used to think that working in private equity was going to be my dream. And then I got into a private equity family for about two months. I was like, yay, go me. And then after about two months, I was just like, this is terrible. I hate it. Oh my God, this, what am I doing here? Um, so in that environment, I think I was, I kind of had this idea of what it was going to be. And I think I was like, I had this very glamorous idea and it wasn't like that because, you know, it's a job. Right. And I think, <laughs> you know, we have this tendency to glamorize a thing that we don't have. Like if something is hard to get, we just assume that I will get this thing and then, ah, oh, like. And then I will be happy. <laughs> And then yep. there will be a life of like endless orgasms mm-hmm. <laughs> if I get this thing. And then we actually forget that it's like, oh, it's a job. It, you know, you might not like it. It, it might be great. It might not. Um, but also what I do regret with this private equity job is that I walked in and like fairly soon I knew it wasn't for me. And yet I stayed. And, <laughs> and, and yet I stayed miserable. And like working so much, I remember like leaving the office at midnight was a victory because, um, you know, that's the finance world. Um, and yet I stayed mm-hmm. and I'm literally like, why? I will never get that time back. And so I do think that if you get somewhere and you thought that it was going to be kind of the be all and end all and it's not, admit it, like admit it, like fail fast. And I wish I, I, I wish I'd kind of failed faster at that. Oh, I I love what you said about getting experience before you make the transition, because it is so true that a lot of us put off happiness until the future. And we think that we're going to be happy. You're going to be happy once you complete the marathon. You're going to be happy once you lose the 20 pounds. You're going to be happy when we have the new house, whatever, and you push it off. But like, we forget like, hey, (laughs) work on that happiness on the way there and not put all of that stock in arriving. Um, but going back to the the experience mm-hmm. and the volunteering, it kind of like I like the the column that you had, like you mm-hmm. got experience with writing and doing this stuff before you made it your job. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that that's something that like being able to like have those projects on the side. My watch is just talking. Sorry. But like, I think that's a really important thing that people mm-hmm. need to do. If you're miserable in your career right now, find those projects to work on. And develop new skills because it's like, you know, if somebody even told me two years ago that actually I would be making most of my money now teaching and also teaching at business schools, I would be like, what? Really? No, I don't want to do that. Um, (laughs) But actually, I really like it. I really like it when, uh, you know, there's a concept that people think is completely alien to them that is incomprehensible. And then I explain it to them and 
in terms that are really simple. And then the world opens up. And, you know, this reminds me of um, a professor I had at Chicago Booth when I did my MBA there, um, who I remember when I first saw that he was going to be teaching me, I thought, oh, God, no, I'm not going to understand anything he says, because he sits on the Nobel Committee for the Economics Prize. So basically, he's one of the people who, like, who decides who the Nobel Prize for Economics goes to. And he was teaching me finance. And I was like, oh, God, like, this is going to be terrible. And, um, you know, like typical imposter syndrome. I'm sure all the guys were like, yeah, I totally got this. Um, but anyway, I remember what was so amazing about his teaching, and his name is Per Stromberg. Uh, it was that he took concepts that I think lots of people made incredibly complicated, and he just made them super simple, like really, really crystal clear. And he made me understand concepts that I literally thought I was just not going to get to. And he just made them like very, like, as you know, Operating microwave is harder than the way he explained, like really complicated finance concept. And I remember finding that, like for me, actually, that class was really life changing, not because of the finance concepts in themselves, because, you know, I don't actually use a lot of them right now. But this idea that actually, if I don't understand something, it's not because it's too complicated for me, but it's because it's not being explained properly. And that is what I want people to understand about technology, but also about life in general, is if somebody's not explained, if, if you don't understand something, we tend to blame ourselves and we think, well, I'm stupid. I don't get it. And because we don't understand and we blame ourselves, we then feel ashamed. So then we go home and then we try to Google it and then we don't understand it. And then we just spiral into this into this kind of spiral of shame and we just sit there by ourselves thinking I can't figure this out everybody else knows and so like there's no hope for me whereas in that class I saw that actually it's not the concept it's the teacher Mm. and Mm -hmm. once I had this really really good teacher this world opened up to me I was like oh I've I've totally got this and then it was my choice not to pursue you know those subjects it rather than those subjects rejecting me because they were too hard I was like oh no no I can do this mm-hmm. and it's relatively interesting but there are other things you know there are only 24 hours in the in the day and so there are other things I find more interesting so I'm not going to do that but it was a conscious decision made with desire as opposed to insecurity and rejection yeah yeah that that I think you hit the nail on the head of like when you're working with a coach or a teacher or a mentor, whoever's job it is to like move you along in their in your journey, like their job is to break things, complex things down to smaller bits so that you can, like I tell my clients, we're moving A to B, A to B, A to B. You've probably failed in the past of whatever you were doing because you were trying to go from A to Z. And, Mm -hmm. but you just need, you need those, those bite-sized steps and the positive (laughs) self-talk. Like, yeah. 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 And also, I think you also just need somebody who's going to be nice to you Mm. (laughs) quite simply. And uh, because I think we've all had those, you know, whether it's coaches or teachers or gym trainers who kind of just intimidate the hell out of us. And that doesn't work for me. Like, I don't... (laughs) 
Um, I remember I went to a gym class and like this this person just yelled at me and I'm like, maybe that works for other people, but like life is complicated enough. (laughs) Like I don't want to pay somebody to then also yell at me for not doing enough sit-ups. Right. No, I think so. I always wonder if that is like a, like a guy thing because my husband and I, we go to the same gym and I know that he responds, he responds differently to things that are said than I do. I shut down. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to. Whereas for him, it like revs me up. He's like, yeah, like I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Whereas I'm like, I like, I'm literally just here to like get some movement in and I'm not. Yeah. Like I'm here to enjoy myself. Like my, my exercise, like that's, that's joy. You know, going for a jog on a sunny day is wonderful. Like doing a Peloton workout and looking at all those hot people on the screen and listening to to the playlist. That's quite fun. Yeah. Like, and then, you know, I'll open my inbox at work and then there'll be a bunch of shouty things. And I'll be like, right. Okay. <laughs> this is, this is adulting. But I, I do think that in order, in order for a healthy habit to be sustainable, it's got to be enjoyable. That's mm-hmm. why, like, you know, when a smoothie is just a bit too green, when it's literally like kale and celery, I'm like, mm-hmm. no, like kale and celery and then a kiwi, like put mm-hmm. something nice in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, healthy habits have to be enjoyable, even if that habit is learning something new, learning something yeah, that is yeah. outside of your comfort zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you have a very, like, I don't know if you see it in yourself or not, but you have a very complete like philosophy about life. And it's just really interesting to see. Um, There's an author who I love, um, Janine Roth. And there's this book I refer to all the time. It's called Women, Food, and God. And she talks about how um, you can see your relationship with God and like your relationship with other things. But I very much hear it in in your voice and the way that you talk about food and the way you talk about exercise and the way you talk about learning. Um, It's very complete. Well, thank you. But you know what? This was hard, uh, very much influenced by a workshop that I ended up taking completely by accident on female pleasure. Ah, um, see, it goes back to that. It goes back. Yes. <laughs> so uh, my friend uh, became the CEO of this coaching organization. And um, when she became the CEO, she asked me if my mother's apartment in London, which is which is very large, so she's got this very large living room, if they could host a workshop for three days in my mother's living room. And because my, it's one of my best friends and she's just become the CEO of this company, I really wanted to help. And, you know, like, why, why not? Mm-hmm. And she said, and, and of course, we'll give you a free space on this workshop. And I'm like, okay, sure. And I heard... My friend had taken the workshop and she talked about how good it was, but I was just like, I'm helping, I'm helping one of my best friends and it's literally costing me nothing. Great. And literally those three days changed my life. It it was a workshop on female sexuality and female sexual pleasure. And, and I think that's when things really started kind of fitting into place in terms of a whole life philosophy of just like of the importance of pleasure in life because I do think that before like I didn't I didn't understand how important pleasure was just for a sustainable life it was like okay 
work really, really hard or study a lot. And then if you have any time or money left, then like that goes into your enjoyment. Whereas that course, it really made me understand that actually having pleasure as something that is a central tenet of your life, like that leads to a happier life. And also then that can lead to happier work. Like, you know, if you, the aim is to, yes, be an adult, like we all have to do our taxes and all of that, but like hopefully there will also be some pleasure in your work, in, you know, the subject matter or in what it is that you're doing. And I don't think all of work is pleasure. Like I don't, I I, I haven't reached that nirvana, but I think even if you're like a rock star, you know, rock stars still have to go and train and like play the guitar and hurt their fingers and all of that. Um, but I, I think kind of the importance of pleasure in having a sustainable approach it really came from that workshop and then I read a lot about it and and then that really changed my thinking and I think that especially for women women tend to just not think about their pleasure whether it's you know physical or sexual or just like sitting there and just reading a book because you know not for self-improvement purposes but just because it's fun and like you know, just rest, like having a bath, not because it's going to like be especially amazing for your skin or be detoxifying, but just because it smells nice and it's, it's just like fun. Um, I do, I do constantly still have to remind myself to be like, no, okay, you're having a stressful day, do something nice for yourself. Like it's a, it's a constant battle because I do think that kind of the world is telling us no, your pleasure, your pleasure is not important. Other people's pleasure is mm. very important. Whereas, and it's your job to provide it. Mm, yes, I just started a new book on my way to work today called Burnout, where they were talking oh, about um, women being gift givers for other people, for the human beings, for them to enjoy life. But like give, give, give. But like, yeah, to ever sit back and receive or Mm -hmm. enjoy um that that's yeah that's like last it never happens for a lot of women oh absolutely but you can even see that in terms of sexuality like for women actually give 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 give. and then be like Mm. okay well you're doing something nice for me but like you must be tired after 30 seconds it's like Mm -hmm. I did the same thing for 10 minutes and my jaw is aching but I'm whatever (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. Wow. We talked about everything today. This has been we amazing. Did. Yeah. Yeah. Where I have one more question. Um, sure. You mentioned a couple of things, you know, the workshop changed your life books. What are some books that have really changed your life that you think that people should read? I mean, since we're on that topic, I was going to say pussy and reclamation. I think it's fantastic. Okay. Yeah. If you haven't read it also just on the subject of kind of, you know, uh, the sexual history of the female I think uh, vagina a biography by a lady called Naomi Wolf I really really love that uh, now you want some business books yeah we can do that too yeah so I think um, okay in terms of in terms of business books there's a there's a book that I like actually you know what uh, man's um, man's search for meaning uh, I have three copies of it because uh, I, I had a copy and then my friends kept on giving it to me. Um, 
it's it's one of these things that I keep on coming back to um, because it is a reminder that things awful things can happen and god forbid that what happened to to him uh, happens to us hopefully not um but that things can happen and it is always our choice about how we react yes and that's this is just, yeah. yeah i want to interject so i've had i want to say the last three podcast guests that i've had on have mentioned this book so for the listeners this is the book by victor frankel um who was a holocaust survivor who survived the holocaust because he knew his suffering had meaning and he had a project that he needed to complete to help humanity. Um, it's an amazing book. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's an amazing book. And it's also, it's a short read, mm-hmm. which I really, really love. Um, and uh, I can give you, you know, uh, I'll give your listeners a technology book. Cause you know, since I'm, since we'll be talking about technology, I actually think that Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs is really interesting, um, especially for people who are not technical, because what people don't understand is that actually Steve Jobs was a non-technical founder. And um, and I find that kind of even just thinking that itself, you know, people find that surprising. But it was his co-founder, Steve Wozniak, who was the great coder. But, I mean, Steve Jobs was... A genius in other aspects and also like he you know his management style was not particularly friendly and like I don't advocate that but I think I think the way he saw technology and I think the way he looked at the world is very different to what we normally think of as your average tech guy and there's the Silicon Valley folklore of computer science Harvard dropout or you know computer science Stanford dropout and how that person views the world. And it's really interesting to, to even just to say to those Silicon Valley people that actually there is somebody who created one of the most successful companies in Silicon Valley who actually said that he prized artists. Artists to him were, were gods. And so he always said that Apple is a combination of art and technology. And I think this is what a lot of the tech sector actually forgets. The tech sector just thinks, oh, it's about tech. Well, no, you're making tools for humans and humans like stories. Humans are visual creatures. And if your code is perfect, but your thing is ugly, or if your code is perfect, but nobody likes you, it's not going to work. So uh, if you're interested in technology and also just interested in creativity walter isaacson's biography of steve jobs is a really good one amazing cool and the best place to find you where are those so the techno techies podcast is one uh or you can follow me on twitter and say hi to me on twitter so that's sophia matveva or uh you can go on instagram to the tech fun on techies instagram so literally tech on techies on instagram and that is it cool i'll have all of those links in the show notes thank you so much for being on the podcast today Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you.